If you have your Bibles nearby, if you can grab your Bible and open up to Hebrews. This morning we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, but we're going to start reading again from where we were last week, Hebrews chapter 3. So locate Hebrews. We're going to pick up for context this morning back in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 11 this morning. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the Word of God reads, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, he would, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, oh God, that this morning you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us hearts to receive, and that you would give us wills to obey. Help us today to be doers of your word and not hearers only. May your spirit illumine and empower your word to us now as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. It was nearly 100 years ago that A.W. Pink declared the following. He said, quote, Never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today, and never was there such a small percentage of real ones. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them, end quote. How's that to start off our sermon this morning? 
So I must ask you, do you think it has become better or worse, this condition that Pink wrote about nearly 100 years ago? You know, there is a gospel that is proclaimed today that preaches God's love, but not God's wrath. It preaches heaven, but not hell. It preaches man's purposes, but avoids speaking about his sin. It preaches a gospel of bliss with no hardship. This is a false gospel. And it produces false converts. All that is required by these preachers is the raising of a hand, a repeating of a prayer, and then they give the guarantee of eternal life. God's grace, which is certainly amazing, is being cheapened by these preachers. One theologian comments and says, quote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, end quote. Another theologian speaks of this watered-down, easy-believism that has corrupted the gospel, as he says, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, end quote. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not the gospel that we have in the Holy Scriptures. We must make no mistake about it. God's word is clear. There is eternal judgment awaiting those who die in their sins. But there is eternal rest. Eternal rest in the presence of God for those who trust in God's Son, who is the Savior of the world. This morning, the title of this sermon is Entering His Rest. We'll be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We'll also be breaking this up into three points this morning. The first one will be the exhortation we'll see in verse 1, the exhortation. In, ver in verses 2 through 5, we'll see the explanation. And then in verses 6 through 11, we'll see the expectation so the exhortation, the explanation, and the expectation. So let's start with the exhortation that we find in verse 1. Look again at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We read, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The author of Hebrews here is continuing his discussion about the faithlessness of those who failed to enter God's rest that he began back in chapter 3, verse 7. Last week, we studied chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and we saw in that passage three things, that today we need to heed the warning from God, that today we need to heed the warning from one another, and that today we need to heed the warning from history. It was during that portion of the letter that the author first appealed to Psalm 95. Look back to chapter 3. Let's look at it again. We just read it a moment ago, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, we see, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." And as we looked at last week, if you were with us, the Israelites saw many 
of God's mighty works in delivering them from Egypt. And they witnessed his faithfulness to provide for them in the wilderness. Yet with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, they did not believe. They complained against God and they disobeyed him, revealing their unbelief. And they did not enter God's rest. And they fell in the wilderness. And so the author of Hebrews exhorts his audience, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He instructs believers to watch carefully over themselves and one another. In verse 13 of chapter 3, we see that believers are commanded to exhort one another daily so that they do not, do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And picking up on this discussion about how the Israelites failed to enter God's rest, the author now in chapter 4 transitions the topic with therefore. And he now focuses on the fact that the promise of entering God's rest still stands. It is still available for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews, he, he speaks about the promises of God in this letter more than any other letter in the New Testament. This word promise appears 14 times in this letter of Hebrews. So let's look again at this full exhortation in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Notice what he writes. He says, let us fear. In the original Greek, that came at the very beginning of this sentence. Let us fear. This word fear, it means to become frightened. It also means to have reverence or respect. The Greek literally reads this way. It says, let us be afraid should be concerning to us that the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God before their very eyes and still experienced the wrath of God. That should alarm us. The prospect of knowing so much and yet being hardened by sin should cause us to pay special attention. Beyond simply being afraid, the word fear in the New Testament often refers to an appropriate reverence and awe of God that is accompanied by faith. To fear God is to live in a manner that regularly reflects on His holiness, His power, and His presence. Let's take this idea of fear to our driving practices. If you are driving down the freeway and are willfully exceeding the speed limit, which I know none of you do, right? You may find yourself often looking in your rearview mirror, not at yourself. What are you looking for? The cops, the popo. I like the different answers. That's good. You're looking for the police. In that case, you are driving with fear, the fear of the consequences of getting pulled over. But imagine instead as you are merging on the freeway, you see that there is a police car right behind you as you are getting on the freeway. The presence of that police officer causes you to fear or respect their authority as you now drive the speed limit. This is how we are to live before God. Peek ahead in our text to, to Lord willing, what we'll look at next week. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we read, and no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does that mean? It means God knows everything. Every thought, every word, every deed, and we must live in light of this truth. Those who are united in Christ no longer fear death and now have a reverent fear of our living God, which causes us to want to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. And so in our text this morning, when the author of Hebrews writes, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We see that he speaks in a corporate manner. He says, let us. As mentioned earlier, he has already written about our responsibility to one another. He's already spoken in this corporate way back in chapter 3. Looking back a page in chapter 3 and reminding you of what we looked at last week in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 3, we see where he began with this corporate language. He says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." And now in verse 1 of chapter 4, he continues with this corporate language, and he says, let us fear. Again, it's important for us to take notice that the subject of the sentence is plural. It is us, while the object is singular, lest anyone fall away. So what is the implication here? It is that the entire congregation, the whole congregation, must embrace its corporate responsibility of mutual encouragement, lest any of its members fail to enter the rest that God has promised in his presence. This speaks of our need for perseverance. And perseverance is an essential element of the Christian life. And though Christ is ultimately the one that holds us fast, God uses other believers in our lives to encourage and strengthen them in the faith. As a church, beloved, we must collectively take this responsibility seriously. We have a responsibility to the spiritual affairs of others here at Pacific hope. We are to encourage one another. We're to encourage one another to, to flee from sin and to faithfully follow Jesus. Think about how much of our after-service fellowship is on this very topic, encouraging each other in the faith, or how much of it is of things of the world. I'm a guy, I like sports. Ladies, I mean, you can't like sports. <laughs> But as I like sports, what would naturally come is what football game's going on? Who's playing tomorrow night? What's going on next week? But those things truly do not matter. When we have this sacred time together, we are to use it wisely. We are to stir one another up in love and good works to remind each other of the faithfulness of Christ. James communicates how important this is in the life of the church. At the conclusion of James, James chapter 5, verse 20, we read, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you were not able to join us this morning for Sunday school, I encourage you to listen to it later. It ties right in. As a matter of fact, we heard this verse this morning. This morning we spoke of church fellowship. The unity that comes through coming together and our focus on one another as we stir each other up in love and good works. Speaking of this, Simon Kistemaker said this, quote, we ought to take careful note of members who may be drifting from the truth in doctrine or conduct and then pray with them 
and for them. We are constantly looking for spiritual stragglers, end quote. This does not mean that we go around as, as sin sniffers, trying to poke our nose in everything and see who is failing in what way. Because if you look in the mirror, you will see you are as well. But it means we're to come alongside each other, to encourage and strengthen one another in the faith. Because this life is hard. And the original audience of this letter of Hebrews, they were going through difficulty. And so the author writes with compassion towards them. And the same Holy Spirit that speaks through them is speaking to us today to encourage us as well. Richard Phillips says this, quote, he says, A good church, therefore, will not be defined by the size of its building, nor by the number of people attending or the amount of money raised. Rather, by God's standard, a quality church will be one that leaves no stragglers to lag behind or perish in unbelief. The kind of church the writer of Hebrews is looking for is one where the discouraged are propelled forward by encouragement, where the weak find strength in the care of others, and those in danger of being deceived are recalled to the truth in a spirit of love. End quote. Church, what this means for us is we must be intentional. Perhaps even apologetic as we begin to fellowship with the saints and what quickly comes to us is one of our hobbies or, or something else and not Christ. That we could say, you know what? Forgive me. What really matters is how you are doing spiritually. How is your walk with Christ? How can I pray for you and be an encouragement to you to press forward in Christ? I mean, part of this is that we don't have the questions. We're afraid, like, what am I supposed to say? Like, it's easier for me to talk about football. But that's sad. Because Christ is so far greater. There is no comparison. And so do not be afraid to ask the simple questions. How are you doing in Christ? How can I be praying for you? Ask the questions. Be intentional. And so here in this opening line of chapter 4, we have the exhortation that goes out to all of us. Let us fear. Let us fear by stirring up love and good works in one another so that none of us may miss eternal rest with God. Second thing we see in our text is the explanation, which comes to us in verses 2 through 5. Looking at verse 2, we read, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This good news refers back to what the author has already written back in chapter 2. If you want to peek back to chapter 2. In verses 3 and 4, he wrote, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's the good news. The good news is that sinners can be reconciled back to a holy God. And the gospel that came to us also came to the generation that was in the wilderness. Every sinner can only be saved by faith in Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, God's people were saved by faith in Christ anticipated. As for us in the last 2,000 years, all of God's people have been saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 how important faith is. We read, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The good news that was proclaimed during the wilderness generation was then to be received by faith. And it still today is to be received by faith. 
We see here in verse 2 that the good news that they heard in the wilderness did not benefit them. Because, as the author puts it, they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here in verse 2, we see this word faith appearing for the first time in this letter. It is a term that the author uses 32 times in Hebrews. Only Romans has this word faith more often, 40 times in Romans. And in context here in chapter 4, faith points to the right response to the Christian message. It means fully trusting God wholeheartedly. It is not walking on the fence. It's not having one foot in and one foot out. It is all in. It is a belief that trusts God with everything. And so why did hearing of the good news bring no lasting benefit to the Israelites? Because they did not appropriate the good news by faith when they heard it. Listen to what is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. We read, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. There's an indictment against those in front of whom God had done so much and for whom he had done so much. Uh, again, in Psalm 106, verses 24 through 26, listen to what the psalmist says about this. Starting in Psalm 106, verse 24, we read, Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their, heart, in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Well, what, what does this mean? What does it mean for us today? It means that hearing God's word is not enough. It must be accompanied by active faith. We'll peek ahead, flip some pages to the right in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We read this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's a correlation here in, in chapter 11, verse 6, between faith and seeking God. That active faith is a pursuit of God to know him more and to walk in a manner by his grace and through his spirit, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. Biblical scholar George Guthrie comments here and says, quote, the Israelite community physically may have heard the words, but their hearing was faithless. True spiritual hearing involves active faith as a component, end quote. Another commentator picks up here and says, quote, Hearing God's voice brings wrath, not benefit, to those who refuse to receive his message with submissive trust, end quote. And as we look at these various quotes, F.F. Bruce sums this all up and says this, The practical implication is clear. It is not the hearing of the gospel by itself that brings final salvation, but its appropriation by faith. Faith is necessary. We do not simply agree with the facts about Jesus. Belief must be active. The gospel must be received in faith. Believing the claims about Christ and placing your trust in him alone. 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 
In verse 3, we pick up in, in Hebrews chapter 4, where the author says, For we who have believed enter that rest. Notice first that it is those who have believed that enter his rest. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we have already seen, it must be appropriated by faith, genuine belief in the Son of God. Jesus spoke in John chapter 3 and verse 18. He said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Later on in John's gospel in John chapter 8, Jesus speaking of himself as the Son of God in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, says this, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, the entire purpose of John's gospel is that you would believe in the name of the Son of God. And through believing, you would be saved. At the end of John's gospel, he says, these things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You must believe. And that belief must be an act of faith. Secondly, is those who have believed that enter into rest. And so the author speaks of this rest, and, and the question should arise in our minds, what is this rest? Is it a present spiritual state, or is it a future eternal state? And scholars argue both sides of this question. And the author of Hebrews argues that both sides belong to the same coin. Let's read together from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, as he explains this. Read starting in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. What we see here in these verses is that there is a direct correlation that is made between the rest spoken about in Psalm 95 and the rest spoken about in Genesis chapter 2. Quoting from Psalm 95, verse 11, we read there, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And as we read this morning in our opening reading and closed in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, in verse 2, we read, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. For those of you that have studied through Genesis, or those of you men that are gathering on Thursday nights going through Genesis, if you have not yet joined us, you are still welcome men to come and join us on Thursday nights. But you'll see something as you look at the first six days of creation that each of those days are marked by a refrain. And there was evening, and there was morning. But this refrain is not mentioned in the account of the seventh day. On the seventh day, we simply read that God rested from all his work. His work of creation was completed, and he rested and this rest of God is an ongoing reality. But this by no means, by no means means that, or infers that God is now sitting idle and is no longer at work. In John 5, verse 17, Jesus said this. He said, my father is working until now and, and I am working. God resting on the seventh day means there is nothing to add to what he has created. He knew that everything that he made was very good. Spurgeon comments here. Spurgeon says this, quote, We enter into rest even in this present life 
All who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are already enjoying rest of heart. And in proportion as faith possesses their souls, in that proportion they enjoy perfect rest, end quote. Which also means this, there is no rest for the heart that is apart from Christ. Rest only comes through him. Listen to the way that Augustine prayed. He said, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. He knew that our rest was in Christ. Our second reading this morning, we read part of the Gospel of Matthew, part where Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 beginning in verse 28, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." I gave a plug to the men's study on Thursday nights. The ladies also are going through a book called Gentle and Lowly that unpacks this right here. The heart of Christ. And that we only enter God's rest through Jesus. That it is Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so if we fail... If we fail to trust in Jesus, we also fail to enter God's rest and instead are awaiting his wrath. So that was the explanation. Now we go on to the expectation. What are we to do with this? So picking up in verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews chapter 4, we read, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so though the Israelites failed to enter God's rest because of their disobedience. The promise of entering God's rest remains open to subsequent generations, both David's and ours. It was unbelief demonstrated through disobedience that kept the generation of the Exodus out of God's promised rest. But to those who hear the exhortation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a rest that is beyond an earthly rest. Once again, we must heed this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He then goes on and explains that if Rest could have come through Joshua. It would not have come to subsequent generations. In verse 8, he says in our text, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. It's interesting that in Joshua chapter 21, verse 44, we read that the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. And then later during David's reign, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Listen, the rest that God desires for his people to have is far greater than a short-lived break from warfare. And Joshua could not give that kind of rest. There would be another with the same name who would bring this fulfillment. Many of you know the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the Greek name Jesus. New Testament scholar Leon Morris comments and says, quote, There had been a Jesus, referring to Joshua, who could not lead his people into the rest of God, just as there was another Jesus who could. 
End quote. It is this Jesus, the Son of God, who came to gift God's people with eternal life. Continuing in in the text, in verse 9 and 10, we read, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his and so up to this point, we continue to see this word rest, and the author had used one Greek word every time he spoke of rest. He used a Greek word, katapausis. But here in this verse, he strategically changes to a different Greek word for rest. It is sabbatismos. That's where we get the English rendered Sabbath rest. Which, by the way, this noun is not found anywhere else in biblical Greek. It is here. It is a special period of rest for God's people that is modeled after the traditional Sabbath. We get a bit more clarity about this in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his And so the author, in light of Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, that God rests, that it is a spiritual reality in which one ceases from one's own works. And so we who have believed enter into this rest, into God's rest. For we have rested from our own works as God did from his. You say, what in the world does that mean? What works are we speaking about? Well, some theologians have understand resting from one's works as no longer relying on one's own works to try to please God and instead trusting in Christ and his all-sufficient righteousness. Do you know that there is not going to be this little scale like a, a good-o-meter that you step on and see if your good outweighs your bad? It doesn't exist. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot do enough good works to merit eternity with God. Christ came and lived and died in our place. We must believe in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ do we find rest for our souls, for he is the Lord of the Sabbath. No amount of good works can save us or give us rest. Turn over to Galatians. I want you to read with your own eyes in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, actually all of Galatians would be a good read, but I'm going to just pinpoint one verse from there. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 We read this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't do enough good. If that was possible, then Jesus died in vain. But because it is not possible, Jesus came to save sinners just like us. In Genesis, again, referring to that part about God resting, in in chapter 2, we read about God's finished work. Genesis 2, starting in verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. In the New Testament, in John chapter 19, we read about Jesus' finished work. Right before he gave up his spirit and died, he said, It is finished. The debt that we could never pay was paid in full by Jesus. Believers now rest in his finished work. 
So the rest promised is both an already and a not yet. It is through Christ that the believer enters into God's rest. But this rest in its fullness remains a promised eternity in the future. So there is a present rest in Christ. Oh, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is rest for your soul. There is no more fear and wondering, have I done enough good? Have I learned enough? Do I have the right thing? Am I following the right one? There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And so when you are in Christ, you have rest for your soul. There is no longer fear of death, but an expectation of seeing our Lord face to face. And so it's through Christ that we enter this rest. And it is a present rest that is experienced. But there is also a future rest that is promised to all of God's children, one that will be complete and it will be final and it will be for all eternity in his presence. You know, Peter speaks of the future fulfillment as our inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter speaks of it this way. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a glorious hope we have, beloved. And since it remains for some to enter this rest, we see the expectation in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, the final verse we'll look at this morning. We read, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I mean, here lies the expectation. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And much like we saw in verse 1 and in verse 13 of chapter 3, this is corporate language. Let us. It is the responsibility of the entire congregation. We need one another's help in pressing on and trusting Jesus. But let's be clear about entering God's rest. We do not earn this rest. No matter how hard we strive, we do not earn it. It has already been earned by Jesus Christ. We receive it by faith. Our striving is a striving in the faith to continue believing, to remain living our lives for the glory of God. This word in verse 11, strive, it means hard work. It means applying oneself diligently, doing one's best. It speaks of focused attention toward the accomplishment of a given task. What does your faith in Christ look like? Is there diligent work? in seeking him, of looking to please him in all things. Because the Christian life is characterized by ongoing, lively faith in Christ. We see the same word strive later in Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, 14, we read, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so as a reminder, those of the Exodus generation, they failed to enter God's rest because they disobeyed God's voice. They did not pursue holiness. Beloved, we must encourage one another in continuing to follow Christ, to keep our eyes fixed upon him. We must treasure the truth of the gospel, that there is forgiveness in Christ, we must encourage one another towards confession and repentance from sin. And listen, we will never be sinless this side of heaven, but we must strive, we must work hard at resting in Christ's finished work and living our lives in a manner that is pleasing to him. D.A. Carson said this, quote, he said, It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, 
but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient, end quote. It is the fruit of God's Spirit. A desire to walk in a manner that is pleasing to Him. But to those who continue to walk in unbelief, even though they might call themselves a Christian, they are not a Christian. And they will not enter God's rest. They are storing up the wrath of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This goes out to you today. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ alone. Repent. Turn from living a life according to your ways and turn to live it in a manner that is pleasing to God. We were reminded this past week from the atrocities that we saw of the news from Israel that tomorrow is promised to no man. That today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ today. Enter his rest. Father, we thank you that the promise of entering your rest still stands. We pray for any here today who have not fully trusted in Christ, that today they would repent and believe. Thank you for your grace towards us and the hope that we have in Christ. Oh God, help us to care well for one another and to be intentional in stirring up one another in the faith. May your grace continue to work within us in helping us to strive in the faith. Help us from becoming apathetic and putting our faith in, in cruise control. May our faith be an active faith that is fixed on bringing you glory. Thank you for the rest that we may now have in Christ and the hope of entering your rest for all eternity. It's in the precious name of your Son that we pray these things. Amen. Beloved, receive this morning's benediction from Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in, we, in deed or word, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God bless you, church. I'll see you out on the patio.